Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade, joined here in my office, our studio, by Mike, as we are recording the fourth part of our Winging It series on the life of Luther. So this uh, session, we've been trying to keep them to about 30-35 minutes. This session, we'll be looking at uh, Luther at the University. We've made our way now from his socioeconomic, cultural, religious background um, to his early education. And now we're about at the university as he will be getting ready to enter into Erfurt. If you've not listened to the others, you'll be fine. Go ahead and listen. Encourage you to go back and listen, though, too, to get some context. But we do want these to be somewhat standalone even as much as they're connected to what came first and what comes next. Uh, The first three will be dropping all at once, Lord willing, and this will be the first of the weekly installments that should follow, um, hopefully right around uh, the Christmas season. So, uh, with that being said, just a couple things. If you're digging these, uh, please do uh, subscribe to the podcast. Um, that helps you get them downloaded or, or to your phone when they come out so you at least have them on your radar to listen to. If you're like me, it's easy to kind of forget about one podcast. You maybe get into something else, and then you go back and you go, I missed a whole bunch of stuff. Um, rate, review, that's always re- appreciated. Um, most importantly, like and share. If you don't mind sharing these on social media when they come up or sharing by word of mouth with your friends, that's really how the conversation gets expanded. We got... Uh, I would say four or five really good emails or um, Facebook messages or or Twitter or whatever you call it on Twitter when someone messages you. Um, Just in the last few days of people who were traveling, they got turned on to the podcast by someone else, and they already came to us with great episode ideas or some pretty funny jokes based on stuff we've done, and we really appreciate that. So keep that up, please, and we enjoy the interaction. Um, We had... Peter, give us the, the, the correct podcast email the other day because Mike and I always mess it up. And uh, Do you remember it, Mike? No. I think it's podcast at letthebirdfly.com. But if you go to letthebirdfly.com, that information is there. We also have been, uh, hopefully we keep it up, we've had daily written content on the website, uh, blog posts, devotionals for the Advent season. And this episode or this session, Mike, if I'm right, comes out December 20-something, I'm looking, winging it for, should be coming out December 20th. So if we manage to stick to that schedule, this will be coming out right before Christmas. And so we'd encourage you to be looking for uh, the Christmas materials around that time. We're going to have an episode on the O antiphons that we'll run again that we ran last year. Um, The devotions will be continuing throughout Advent. And around the 20th, we'll be getting into the O Antiphon devotions. Encourage you to check those out to help focus you uh, for Christmas. But also, we're hoping December 23rd to release it two days early. Our normal episode release uh, day is Tuesday, usually winging it's Thursday. But we want to get the Christmas episode on Sunday, the 23rd, out to you so that if you're traveling, uh, you have something to listen to to kind of help to focus you on the Incarnation we're excited for that episode. We have two guests lined up. We're hoping to talk some C.S. Lewis, some Athanasius, some Luther on the incarnation of Jesus and what it means for us, what's in its importance. All of that being said, why don't we get into uh, the meat of this Winging It session. By the way, I want to give a quick shout-out if he's listening to Pastor Dustin Yonke in Watertown. Got a phone call last night. Very encouraging on our Winging It series on church history. 
And I will just say those things, those gestures go a long ways, and it has me a little extra excited to be in here recording today. So thank you to Dustin for the encouragement, too, and to everyone else who has been writing with the same. Uh, I think, Mike, that's probably got to be one of the best things about this is the interaction we've had with people. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to let you get us on topic, Mike, since you're best at that. And why don't you uh, orient us a bit with what's going on in Luther's life at this point? So Luther had um, was born in Eisleben, but really grew up in Magdeburg, where he started his schooling, and then eventually makes himself to, uh, to Eisenach, where he does uh, what we would call maybe his high school years, for the most part, are in Eisenach. But then it's time to go to the big city, to the big university, and he is going to be accepted into the University of Erfurt. Um, and he's going to start his undergraduate studies. I believe they in, were the the Erfurt Friars. Go Friars. Go Friars. Um, yeah. I'm just joking. I made that up. But I, do you do they do universities in Europe right now? Since you've been in in yeah, that the sports scene? aren't really connected. They to don't them the have. Same way. They, they tend to play have, city sports, but they don't have mascots, do they? Like I don't remember Erasmus ever talking about a mascot and usually if there was an image connected with it it was the statue well, of Erasmus. This, now so. this is going to be a free-for-all for us that we take like Paris and Louvain and whatever and we uh, give them mascots. The yellow vest. Anything with France I'm going to say their mascot well, should be the yellow. Right I, now. I lost two hours last night reading about these safety vest riots. So Right. I, do you think the yellow vests are going to you know, supplant some of the other iconic French kind of... I'm kind of hoping so. It's, this thing is uniting anarchists and uh, nationalists. I mean, it it's across the... Sp- they were interviewing some guy, and he's like, yeah, this is because of the high taxation for this, 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 and he was clearly, like, espousing uh, conservative, more nationalist mm-hmm. views. And he's like, but this is not, like, one group of people. We have the right and the left. Like, the anarchists, they're over there fighting the police. And I'm like, <laughs> So, like, that's the anarchist job in this, is, is fighting the police. But... uh. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Well, and I don't know. There was a shooting in Strasbourg at the Christmas market last Yeah, this is night. really sad. Now, that is... And you know that area pretty well, don't I you? I know exactly where that was. And there, it was not far from um, places where I, you know, went to a restaurant and walked around. I know exactly where that was. But that that was more of an act of terrorism, I believe. But anyway, yes, France has got some problems right now. So anyway, that will be a, a winging it, or not a winging it, but... Um, a free-for-all idea about mascots for some of these great European universities. So back to Luther. He is going to enroll in the University of Erfurt. He's probably 18, maybe he's 17, uh, depending on how you uh, run the dates of his birth. And this would have been in, I believe, May of 1501 is when he when he arrives in Erfurt. Certainly 1501, so to orient ourselves with, with uh, a timeline there. Um, He's going to earn his Bachelor of Arts, 1502 in September, uh, his Master of Arts in 1505 uh, in January, and then I believe in uh, May is when he starts his law studies, and then, of course, in July of 1505 is when he is going to um, enter that monastery. Maybe just lay the groundwork just for Erfurt, too. I just had a quick question, Mike. Um, I was just Lysol in my office because we were really fortunate, Dr. Uh, Moldenhauer was willing to come on and record about travel the other day, and that'll be coming out soon. But he had a cold, and he had his day quill with him, and so I, I Lysoled everything down. But um, you know those Here We Still Stand conference mugs we got? So mine came in my backpack thing they gave us, and it's been in there. And I want to use it because my coffee's pretty hot in my thermos. So I rinsed it in the bubbler, as they say in Wisconsin, in the water fountain. And then I dried it with my T-shirt, which is relatively clean. Um safe 
I think so. And uh, just for our listeners, Wade is um, a conundrum. So he's a little bit of a germaphobe, and all of his books are very, very straight. Um, and yet there are other parts of his life where you're like, you're pretty gross. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that because I, 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 that is actually very true. But you think I can drink out of I this? Think you, I think you can. You're, okay. you're safe. You'll all be right. fine. Um, so <clears throat> maybe just the – it's not just the young kid going from what we would call kind of a boarding school prep situation into now college and now with all this freedom. In fact, it would have been quite strict there, um, although it sounds like they – from Luther's own words, they the students broke their words. So what did they major fun, in? Yeah. What did they major in? Was his? I believe uh, it was drinking and whoring. Yes, was so, the phrase he used. And what's kind of interesting about reading these biographies is we see, uh, even if you don't mention kind of those things, um, or if you just say yes, it was very strict. Like you got up at four in the morning and you did this and you did that. And if you leave out that little anecdote from Luther, and maybe you have historical reasons to do that, or you didn't think it was that important, you. You can lend us to go down one avenue of looking at that specific time and place. But then if you like really mention Luther's offhanded comment about other oh, majoring and drinking and whoring, you get this impression that it's a frat house and probably either extreme really is inaccurate. Well, and he does, middle. for instance, he has like this elaborate last supper type of thing before he goes into the monastery and his friends are at heaven's you know, gate. They're weeping as he's going to, as he's going to be leaving them. I think it, and we talked about with Mansfeld and with Luther's dad breaking up bar fights, uh, but these people also being able to be very pious um, about the piety attached to mining. And we'll get to when Luther cries out to St. Anne, that's the patron saint of miners. Uh, we love to look at church history and think there was this golden age where people were just, everything was consistent in their life. And Mike, you were just joking about me even that I can Lysol down the better part of my office, but then have some pretty you know, things where I probably don't give attention to that I should. Um, people are people. And so, yes, these students, even these who are studying theology, they have a very structured life. They're up at 4 a.m. I mean, their day is just busy. What They're locked in at 8 p.m., I believe. Um, but they're also people, and like all of us, they would blow off some steam. They're capable of going out and having a good time, even though they are Christians, right? They, they hold these things. And so that we don't look back and think that people were, there was ever this age where people were entirely consistent, entirely pious in all the ways we think of piety. And in many ways, even our piety is cultural. Um, a lot of things are. I'm not saying drunkenness isn't a sin. Drunkenness um, <clears throat> is a sin, right? So if right now you're listening and you're drunk, we're anti drunkenness. Have some coffee and sober up, buddy, right? But, um, but I think it, it's important to understand. And these people are living with deep conflicts and tensions in their own life, too. We were just recording with Dr. Farley on uh, anthropology, and we kind of got into theology and science. But there's tensions in their own life they're wrestling with, too, right? I mean, uh, there's human life has always been filled with complexity. And so I think we can have where Luther's with these students who are very dedicated. They have a very structured day. But he can also say, well, they all may, we all, well, he doesn't, I don't think he excludes himself, although we don't think he was a complete party no. boy, but he can, he can offhandedly say, oh, the, they really majored in, in drinking and whoring. Yeah. You know. And, and I think that just a couple of things, and then we'll get back to Erfurt. One is consistently, you know, Luther does not say I'm a, um, a choir boy here, although he probably, you know, actually sang in the choir, but anyway. I think they had to be. <clears> yeah. I think that was forced in. Um. Sometimes, though, I mean, I, I've had friends who were choir boys and 
we always think like, oh, the football players, they really can part. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's not a group that can't yeah. have their own way of having fun. That's that's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> but consistently, the biographers will say, yeah, he had sins and he admitted to them, but it was not of the sexual nature other than his thoughts. There, there's no evidence and there's no reason to believe that he was um, like many men of power today, right? Well, and that's one of the amazing things with Luther is there's no... Um, and I don't mean this dismissively because it, and it, it's interesting to me. Sometimes Christians can be dismissive of this stuff. Like the the Me Too stuff can be overplayed, right? Things can go too far. But like it's not a Christian st- stance to be unconcerned with sexual harassment. Right. You know, it's, right. when you find yourself being an apologist for people right. accused of these things. Um, now, so you do want to defend a reputation if someone is falsely accused. So don't take right. that the wrong way. And we've seen people very prominently falsely accused as well. Um, but it is rather amazing, Luther, for someone who is a very charismatic person, Powerful. lives in a time where it would have been very easy to flaunt power. Um, and I hate to say it, but religious movements around a personality have a really mm-hmm. bad track record when it comes to this. Um, no shortage of opportunity in Wittenberg or in Erfurt. Yeah, and as a monk, um, you know, in his life before getting married, <coughs> um, you have Zwingli, for instance, who had a little bit of a spotted past. Um, others who it was kind of just known there were indiscretions. When it comes to to sexual sins, Luther, amazingly, there's not stuff really out there. Now, there will be accusations made about his mother because that was the polemics of the day you'd attack someone's mother, which shows, right, sometimes there's good progress. Like nowadays, it's not okay to attack someone's mother to make... But, um, but yeah, Luther himself, I think, Mike, you're onto a good thing there is really weathers these accusations fairly well. Accusations about his temper, yes. Probably even some about his drinking. Uh, now, we don't have accounts of Luther drinking and drunkenness, but we do know he had, what was it, his mug with the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and he kind of boasted that Melanchthon couldn't drink his way through the catechism. Uh, but, uh, but you know, one of the things that doesn't just doesn't come up is, uh, is sexual sin. You know? And and you have all these enemies who would have been if there was any oh, sure. sniff of it would have. And and just just maybe to your point about there's no such there's no such pure time where we have to try to have a repristination of a church. On the same time, there's no just totally debaucherous, awful place where like sometimes we look. Oh, there wasn't a believer in all of Europe when Luther got. Well, hold on a little bit, and and even Luther's some of the glosses in his, some of his early studies, the books that that we have found in his handwriting, he was struggling with. Um, righteousness by faith very, very, very early on. That was still there. The more there. we find out, the earlier we push stuff up that he's yep. thinking about. And, and very much so that they were faithful there. But at the same time, to see kind of this debaucherous situation, you know, it was said in Rome, and, and, and partly maybe this was part of his 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 ability to, to not when he becomes um, more famous is not to fall into those uh, sexual sins is what he saw in Rome, where you were, quote unquote, a chaste priest because you limited yourself to women and not just a woman, but women. Right. Right. And so um, it's all around him. He would have had an opportunity, but we're getting too far afield here. When he's a young man, he goes in 1501 to Erfurt. You're talking a town of 19,000. So pretty big for for the day. 
uh, a college town, but also a very religious town. 80, I think, uh, some sort of religious organizations. You're going to have Augustinians, you're going to have Franciscans, you're going to have Dominicans. You're, this is called the Rome of the North. And so a beautiful architecture, a very, uh, I mean, a legit university, right? The yeah. oldest in Germany. I, I, I did not know this, but... Uh, um, one of the oldest in Germany, if not the oldest in that part yeah, of there Germany. Yeah, there were some issues with the politics and its founding, so it can be dated different ways. But yeah. But then, and then, but then had a had a quite a long um, break there for was it 150 years, all the way up until there was a run of the yeah. Of, I can't remember how long. Yeah, it was at, at some in the 1800s, maybe or something like that. That it was it was shut down and didn't come back until until the 1900s, maybe even after World War II. Anyway, I will look those dates up. But um, and then so it, it is a legit university on the scene, and then has a is going to have a budding rivalry with Wittenberg and its university, and that's going to play into some of the politics of how Luther ends up getting his degree there, and and some of the Augustinian sort of. Um, uh, uh, when he's an Augustinian friar, the politics of that and how he ends up in, in Wittenberg uh, later on. So kind of an, it's an interesting town, Erfurt. Um, I did not travel to Erfurt when I was in Germany. Uh, did, we, did you make it to Erfurt, Wayne? Yeah, I've been a couple times. Yeah. And, you know, one of the neat things with Erfurt is, um, so one of the times you go, it's worth staying at the Augustiner Cloister at Luther's Monastery because they, they do have um, hotel rooms there now. Based, well, they're not hotel, but you get what I mean. They actually have, it's run by evangelical sisters, by nuns. <coughs> and uh, um, so it's worth checking out. But one of the cool things with Erfurt is there is a monastery and a church just about everywhere. And I remember at one point I was working on some translation stuff of Luther for a publication, and he kept complaining about the barfusser monk and the barefoot monks. And I'm like, why is it, what's his issue with these barefoot monks? Like, I get it, like, they're barefoot monks. And uh, was walking, camera. It was one of the times I must have gone with friends because we were walking in to look for a bar. And because um, that's, right, that's what you do when you're in Erfurt, Wisconsin, you know, people. And I uh, um, went by the monastery of the Barfuser monk and the, the barefoot monks. And, uh, right, these were rival monks. So when they were playing church league basketball, probably, you know, they were like, hey, Martin, nice shoes. They must be comfortable. We don't wear shoes because Jesus, you know, and he's like, all these, you know, hypocrite barefoot monks. We'll see you at the next jousting match, my yeah. friends. Yeah. Uh, uh, University of Erfurt, uh, taken over that, Erfurt was taken over by Prussia in 1816. The school was closed and not reopened until the reunification. So, of Germany, 1990. So, but at that time, certainly, uh, this is the Rome of the North. It's very religious, um, and probably had some of the same debaucherous problems as time. yeah as Rome did. Sophisticated. Um, this is big time. This is the this is this is a big city for for the kid from Mansfeld. He's he's taken the next step, and um, he's going to enter into uh, to the university. Um, and again, we set this scene of. Uh, uh, probably um, lower class people, an emerging merchant class, and yet you have some uh, nobility, some very smart people, um, and a lot of religious people, shoulder to shoulder in this in this town of 19,000. And uh, uh, it, I think it was probably a pretty exciting time. And uh, wait, let me just do a, one little tangent here. Um, when I was reading these biographies, a, a thought kept recurring to me. And, and when I think about history, it, it uh, comes back to me quite a bit that 
it seems to be that in certain times and certain places, there's an explosion of um, really smart or talented or ambitious people. And I think some of that has to do with the ebb and flow of philosophical ideas. This is the time of the Renaissance and the, and the Reformation. You know, people are thinking about things. <clears throat> but it also made me think, uh, uh, just as the example, Luther's, Luther picks up these very important people along his life. Um, even in Eisenach and then Erfurt and then and then Wittenberg and, and you're like, oh, this classmate became the mayor of Wittenberg. Oh, this classmate became the whatever. This classmate, um, you know, was um, uh, did this and did that. And you go, how how did so many smart, talented people? And it's more than just we're studying this time because these are these are big time intellectual people that you know Melanchthon and Luther would be in the same university and. And I start to think that there's a lot of talent out there in, I don't know, Hoboken, wherever. And we, as humans, tend to rise to the occasion where a lot of it is God puts you into a position where you got to think or you got to fight or you got to do something. And we tend to not rise to the occasion perfectly, but we tend to rise up. And it says something about being created in the image of God, that there, there's some talent in all of us. And a lot of times it may only be just the opportunity and the circumstances that pull that out of us. And you see that in, a, in, in just this passionate time of Luther going through his university studies and then as a friar and then in this political situation, you see good, bad, and ugly, but man, a lot of passion, a lot of talent, and a lot of smarts. Yeah, I think two things with that, and then I'm going to ask to take my own little tangent just briefly because it's in my mind. Um, I think first we have to remember, right, the university, kind of think university in America in the 40s or 50s, where there's not nearly the percentage of the demographics that are going. Um, And so, like, if if you're someone like me who's on Wikipedia a lot, like, I... Not like for research for sources, but I'll be reading a book or an article and like someone comes up and then then I'm just chasing rabbit tails and I'm clicking on hyperlinks. But um, yeah, there's there's less people going to university. And so those are are doing are doing so to move up in the world. And it shows kind of the every you have. We see this at colleges, seminaries, whatever. Certain classes just can take on certain characters um, and maybe they really push each other. So I think that's part and then I think secondly, if we think of the four loves with C.S. Lewis, he talks about in there, nothing's more dangerous than a circle of friends. And some of the most um, world-chasing movements have begun, you know, in coffee shops and taverns. <clears throat> and uh, there's something about, and Mike, you had this more than me, but even our prep system where you, you go to school with people for 8, 12 years, and, uh, or even a shorter span, of, I just think of our own time in college and then seminary, uh, you really get having conversations and those conversations spur you on in your work. And so not simply, too, that you um, happen to run into people, but there's almost like a gravitational pull. Once you get a few people talking about something cool, other people get sucked into the orbit. And I, this is not to brag about the podcast even, but one of the cool things we've seen is now that we've been doing this and people kind of know about it, to have even on campus faculty who will come up and say, it'd be really cool if you talked about that and to be able to say, how about you come talk about that? And uh, it's really, right, you you start getting conversations. There's a reason for them to happen. And I think, uh, you know, Spalatin, others that he'll develop relationships with coming out of this time, Lang, um, 
you know, there's there's people that dig talking together, and so I think that's important. I want to get a little bit back to uh, kids. If you're in the car, parents, if you're listening to this with your kids, uh, I'm going to do my best to be euphemistic. Um, but a little bit more to uh, maybe the intimacy. How about that as a word? I mean, we talked about, you know, Luther and, and the university and a number of students who maybe were um, promiscuous or, or not. Pro- I don't think anybody was promiscuous, promiscuous, but um, when it comes to how we can view purity or sexual sins or things like that, there's never been a day where that's not a, a hot button issue and really conflicting for people. And just one thing to bring in that from this time, and I'm going to use England as an example because I was just teaching the English Reformation. Um, Henry VIII, right, is going to start reform and it's going to be, hey, we're going to be Catholicism without the Pope. He's hardcore that priests shouldn't marry. Edward, it's going to be somewhat okay for priests to marry. Mary's going to insist priests get divorced, which is like the least Catholic thing ever, divorce, right? And then Elizabeth's not going to be really cool with it, but she's going to allow it if you go through a bunch of bureaucratic hoops. Um, But yeah, you had these, so really it's better for the, some of them were okay with the priest could have a concubine, you know, a live-in de facto wife. Um, and in fact, that's more spiritual. More There's cases of the lay people ridiculing the uh, the pastor's wives for being um, harlots, you know, that this was, why would you marry a pastor? He's supposed to just have his woman on the side. That's how twisted even in Christianity we can get about these issues because we imbue so much in them. But I think uh, maybe a takeaway from this, because we can look at that and say, well, why would they have been okay with a priest having a mistress? Or It's it's always been complicated. Um, part of them really thought, you know what, it's holier to be celibate. But then part of them got human nature and said, it's really hard to be celibate. So let's, let's have them be celibate nominally, but we'll have to make some um, allowances for flesh. And uh, just to go back to that with the university setting, um, and sometimes people will read about people from this era and they'll go, oh man, they were, I really thought they were a great person, but then I found out this or that. It's a, people have always been people, and this is not to excuse their sin. But it is to say two impetuses that, or impeti that will come from Luther, because he makes this um, remark about drinking and whoring at Erfurt 30 years later when he's looking back. But these are some of the incongruities Luther sees. And so Luther's going to address those, right? Better to be married than to burn, as Paul said. Um, but Luther's also going to understand, as he sees how conflicted people are, this is where the importance of absolution will play in. He rec- He's conflicted by all these things. He recognizes his own need for forgiveness, and we'll get to the monastery, but that others too, you know, even Frederick the Wise, um, and, and not to go into that, but just as a little side, if I were, if this were in a book, it'd be in one of those bubble boxes, Mike, but I hope that makes a little bit of sense too. As Luther looks back to this period, all of these things come from Luther later in life, and he's processing them decades later, and he's also asking, we all ask ourselves, how did that shape me? How did that form me? Um, And I'm guessing, Mike, you do this too, where you look back and you'll have the same memory, but each year, over five years, it has different meaning for you, depending on what you're going through, how you look back at it. So um, I don't mean to distract. If you want to react to that, you can, but otherwise we can plug on. No, I think, yeah, that that's correct. You know, Luther, Luther is, it's hyperbole, right? <laughs> there was no major at the University of Erfurt in <laughs> pouring and drinking. Um, UW-Madison, I believe they have one. Um, 
that was a joke. I got it. Yeah. yeah. Or Michigan State. I've been to a football game there. I don't yeah, doubt it. That's right. Um, so Michigan State would just be burning cows. <laughs> somebody in the parking lot came speeding around and sort of cut me off, and they had a Michigan State thing around their uh, license plate. Party on, baby. And I said, "Typical to myself <laughs> out loud." <laughs> anyway, so Wade made me let's ask this question. Okay, what what is it like? What am I taking? What what courses am I taking um, if I'm going to the University of Erfurt? And then maybe if that one is a springboard for you to get into nominalism and realism, although we are already at 28 minutes, so uh, maybe uh, you can kind of just talk about what courses you're going to take. Certainly, you're going to do Aristotle, and yet Aristotle is also starting to be questioned a little bit. There's a there's a growing humanism that's coming on, which is sort of challenging maybe uh, the schoolmen of, of, of scholasticism. Yeah, great question, and I, I do have the time. We're going on my phone this time, and I'm going to say we've got 12 minutes max, 40 minutes. We're going to cut this baby off, and then we'll pick up with more. But yeah, what is he studying? He's studying philosophy and theology especially, um, he would have been on a path, right, to continue in studying law. <coughs> but, but for purposes of what he's going to do later, philosophy and theology will be especially important. And I think here <coughs> it is um, helpful to talk just briefly about nominalism and realism. And nominalism is really hard to wrap your head around in a number of ways because, A, there's a number of different schools of it. Whether we call it schools or not, there's people who took it on different trajectories, um, Occam is going to be the one perhaps most associated with it. William of Occam, uh, Occam's razor, right? We, we're familiar with the name somewhat. Um, but I'll just explain it as briefly and as simply as I can. Realism and nominalism were about universals. And so when I'm talking about it in class, what I do is I, I have my stool, and it even says Johnston's stool on it, and Mike has defaced that before. We won't get into what what he wrote on it. Um but it did hurt my feelings. and uh, But I take that stool and I set it on a table and I say to the students, well, what is that? And they're nervous. They think I'm trying to trick them, but they'll say, well, that's a stool. And I'll say, okay, why is it a stool? Is it a stool because there's a universal stoolness, right? And you recognize that in this thing. Or is it just itself, it's its own particular thing, but we, we call it a stool because it shares characteristics with other things we call stools. Um, let's take that beyond a physical object and let's take that to uh, a color. So um, Moore, the philosopher, likes to use the example of yellow. The truth is like yellow, um, and Moore's not anomalous, but I, I'm getting somewhere. Um, right? Yellow is a color that you couldn't describe it. If, if someone's never seen yellow and you had to describe imagine a blind person asks, well, what is this yellow? But you recognize yellow, right? Well, so let's use a color in nominalism. When I say something's yellow, does that mean there's a universal yellowness that I'm recognizing, right? You, that there's something behind that, a reality, realism it's called. Or am I just saying that thing is kind of like the sun and a giraffe and a baby chicken? Um, you know, it's yellowish. Um, and so nominalism is going to differ from realism in that. Practically speaking, it means realism, which is going to be more influenced by Aquinas, is really uh, interested in metaphysics and universals behind all truth. Um, it's, it's really going to dig the attributes of God. Um, those of you who have listened to enough of these podcasts know where I fall on that. I, I really don't get how people get excited for prolegomena and the attributes of God. <laughs> 
nominalism is going to lend its more itself more towards um, empiricism, the observable, um, how things are in themselves, not necessarily trying to transcend beyond that. And where this will be important for Luther, Luther's not um, take uh, take it or leave it all or nothing on any of this. But he's definitely going to be more of a nominalist. He himself says he's a nominalist and a follower of Occam. But Luther says all these things in context where he's proving a point. Um, this could be called terminism as well. But um, things like uh, God is not constrained by metaphysics and, and our um, attributes we assign him. Uh, the hidden God, that God is free, can do what he wants. Bondage of the will is very much influenced by nominalism. Um, things like I know law and gospel primarily through how I experience them as a sinner saint. So there is a place for talking about the law as an abstract thing. Um, but the thing is, that's never how I encounter law in this life. I encounter law through um, my experience of the law, which means, as, as we said in the preaching episode, the chief use is mirror, the theological use. Um, this plays into the theology of the cross. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And um, nominalism in Occam probably lends itself in this way a little bit better to a negative theology, not meaning like, a, oh boy, things are terrible, but um, what God, apophatic, what God isn't, um, which is really what the cross is doing. It's stripping away delusion. And so, um, the emphasis on preaching and God electing through preaching and uh, um, and the words themselves doing things, a theology of... Naming, naming right, things, nominalism, naming Which is what it. Adam does right away. And um, and the idea of promise, uh, promissio, if you read any Oswald Bayer, this is very important. That's all going to be very influenced by nominalism. And Erfurt was a hotbed for nominalism, but it also seems the professors were able to navigate and use realism when it was useful. Um, and the biggest thing for Luther with philosophy is going to be philosophy doesn't stand over theology. Philosophy is used in the service of theology. And so, and Flacius is going to pick this up later in his uh, um, Clavis, the, the key to sac the sacred scriptures, is that um, biblical terms need biblical definition. We don't import a philosophical vocabulary that then we navigate theology with. But we can take the, the biblical vocabulary and use theology to help us understand concepts. And so Luther, just as important in nominalism and realism, will be the fact that, and this is going to be more like Occam too. Occam's going to say, there's areas of faith where faith is just faith. It's not testable. It's not bound by how we talk about things. It's not handcuffed by universals. The, the, the things that faith deals with and some things are just their own thing. God is just God. And sometimes he's hidden and sometimes he's revealed. Sometimes he seems terrible precisely when he's working a great thing, right? We, it just is how it is. That will lend itself well in service to theology. But even these concepts, and you brought it out, Mike, as we find more glosses, even before he's in the monastery, there's notes Luther is making theologically um, and especially related to Romans one seventeen, the great thesis statement of Paul's letter, the just shall live by faith or the righteous will live by faith. Um, he's already thinking about these at the same time he's studying these philosophies and that would play in. Uh, we got five minutes and I talk too much. No, that's good. And I, it's, it's hard to understand, especially uh, when 
we who were brought up and we had the opportunity for one philosophy class uh, that we took in our training. And then we read Luther. Our and, sophomore year at the peak of our maturity. <laughs> when he's like, oh, Gabriel Beale's a jerk. Oh, I hate Aristotle. And we're like, yeah. And then we have no idea what Aristotle's all about. And to be a little bit more nimble there. And, and maybe, you know, Luther probably didn't, you know, maybe knew as much Aristotle as we necessarily give him credit for, although he does teach it for um, a bit in in, um, in Wittenberg. Um, uh, that's a debatable thing historically, but uh, whether how much he knew or not. But he was at home with these people and understood it and dealt with this and and was was called his nickname was the philosopher because he was sitting around and he was talking this through. He wasn't just memorizing stuff for the test. And um, to watch him kind of take apart this way of thinking where everything is in these categories, for instance, and say, I don't necessarily need to be bound. I mean, you know, he does call himself. Yeah. He goes, I mean, we say, okay, he says something nice about Occam and like, well, he's a nominalist. Well, he did call himself that, but not in every necessarily. Th- it's he, not like one he, second. He says Aristotle's the worst. And then later he says yeah. Aristotle's super helpful for, uh, civic righteousness for, you know, hot vocational thinking, ethical thinking. Yeah, we think like, oh, you know, at this point, this is where he chose his team. He's a Bears fan, not a Packers fan anymore. That's that's not how he how he's thinking. And so one way I try to illustrate these to the students, and I'm not quite sure if I'm right about this or not, but this is the, the best I've come up with so far is, so Luther's criticism, especially of the Roman Catholic Church when it came to transubstantiation, was taking categories from Aristotle and then shoehorning scripture into these categories. So you have a very simplistic, we pretty much all know about about the essence versus accidents of something. This is the essence of something. The accidents are things that you could cut off and I would, you could cut off my hand and the essence of Mike Berg is still Mike Berg. You know, the accident is I do the think hand. your hair is an essence though. That absolutely sure. That is who I am. Um, so now I'm going to say, all right, how do you figure out this real presence thing? Well, the essence is body, but the accidents are bread, right? And so they're trying to shoehorn something into Aristotle, who's great in all other places, but not in this particular place. And so uh, I think Luther, like you said, is not going to be taught tied down to nominalism or realism. He's not going to be tied in, oh, he's platonic or he's, it's just more complicated than that. So, uh, any last words on uh, Erfurt and um, we can close it out. No, I just, I guess I would say Luther uh, was better educated than we normally realize and the more we we, uh, do historical research, the more we find that. Sometimes he'll get knocked as like, well, he wasn't as as well educated in, in humanism of the day, you know, think humanist like Desiderius Erasmus, um, as some of the other reformers. And the more we look at that, no, Luther was very conversant um, as an academic in his day. And and this is not to toot his horn because we're Lutherans. Um, this is non-Lutherans writing about him for the Luther anniversary saying, uh, the more we find out, the more he really did know. So when he goes into the monastery, he's not simply going to go into the monastery as one who's having a spiritual crisis, although he is. He's going to go in as someone who is very equipped for everything that will follow. Um, Now, 
theologically, he's, he's got to do some work in the scriptures, and the monastery will afford that. Um, but I think this is a reminder then, too, for Christians as well, the value of an edu- education. Lutheranism comes out of the university. It comes out of education. And we ought to be uh, you know, leading the pack in Christianity when it comes to being intellectually and academically engaged. There's a real value in that. And, uh, and Luther shows how we can take things that are not in every way conducive with Christianity, but use them when it is helpful and applicable. And I think there's a real benefit in that too. That being said, we're getting close to our end. So I'm just going to say uh, in between this and the next one, hopefully you're listening to these, uh, enjoy the holidays and let the bird fly.